I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking today at verses 7 and 8. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Last week we introduced you to the concept of the pursuit of God. And I want to say something. I think that last Sunday, this Sunday, and next Sunday will be some of the most important messages I think I ever preached. Because I think that fundamentally the thing that is lacking within the church of Jesus Christ are people who know their God. Who know their God. Who don't know about God, but know indeed their God. And we saw in Psalm 42 last week, this is critical, we saw in Psalm 42 last week, the psalmist say, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God. And I kind of shared and made the point that if we are not pursuing God, then what evidence is there of God in our life? As you hear me say time and time again, the proof of desire, the proof of desire is in the pursuit. It's in the pursuit. So we're looking at the pursuit of God. And as, <clears throat> as I shared, it's the, probably the singular most important issue facing the church. Many believers can find themselves to be very orthodox. They could be steeply involved in formalism and tradition. They could be so attentive to the work but never, ever, ever have an presence or an encounter the presence of the living God. And that is critical for us. And remember last week I shared with you that the psalmist, when he was talking about that he pants after God, he was not talking about religious formality. It was not ritual. It was not fellowship with other Christians. The consuming desire, as articulated by the psalmist in Psalm 42, was for a person specifically, and that desire was for the presence of God. Do you often think about the presence of God? Do you often think about it? You know, we, we have abused a verse. You know what verse we abuse? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Yeah. Is there truth to that? Of course. Why? Because our God is omniscient. That is distinctly different from experiencing the presence of God Almighty. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, the believer can experience the very presence of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And there is not anything else that can be more beautiful, more important, and to be honest with you, more sustaining in your Christian life is that you would indeed know the person of God. It is only then that we can begin the pursuit of God as the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 33, uh, in Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when what? When you search for me with all of your heart. You see, there is this collaborative with God. God says, I'll allow myself to be found. But in order to do so, you must come. You must come and seek me. 
Now listen, an illness has come over the church and it's come over our society. It is generated by our society. And that, Ill, uh, that illness, that spiritual malady is distraction with other things. I want you to think about something. If you wake up in the morning and you're one of these people that, you know, put on the news right away, or you want to know what the weather is, or worse yet, you wake up, pull that cell phone out, and right away start with the blue, 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 blue. What is the first thing that is coming at you? Distraction. What, is, what happens every 14, 12 minutes on a TV station? Buy this. Get that. You need this. You need that, right? What happens when you go on social media? The distraction. Oh, the world is so terrible. This is happening. That's happening. And we become consumed. We become consumed with what the world wants us to know. What the world is pushing upon us. That's why we are a society that is materialistic, consumeristic, and indifferent toward God. There's no doubt about that. Because we are getting dumped on day in and day out to buy this. You need that. You have to have this. This is the latest and greatest. And we allow that to come into our lives we usually do not deflect it. As a matter of fact, we have accepted that. We have, have accepted that just like breathing. We say, well, this is the way it is. But what that does is that replaces our pursuit and our hunger for God until the next thing you know, we become dry, we become formal, we become traditional, we become ritualistic, but we are devoid of the power and the presence of God Almighty. When God called Israel, God said to Israel, you are going to be a nation known because I go before you. When Israel was going to cross into the promised land, when they sent out the spies to go spy out the land and they met the harlot Rahab, what was the thing that the harlot Rahab said? We have heard of your God. And we have heard how your God goes before you. Should that not be the hallmark, the trademark of the church of Jesus Christ? Should that not be the hallmark of the believer? We have heard of your God, and we have heard how he goes before you. But that's not the case. Look at the landscape of the church for the most part, and the landscape of the church is fairly similar to the landscape of the world. Now, there are people who pursue. I shared with you last week. There are many who wouldn't think twice about, you know, blowing off the Lord's Day to do something fun or whatever. The pursuit, the proof of our desire is in the pursuit. What is it that you're pursuing? And so consequently, is it any surprise that for the most part we see a weak church? In today's scripture text, in Philippians 3, we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul and the pursuit of God specifically now. Now it's the pursuit of God, but it's important that we understand what is it or who is it we are pursuing. So we're going to look at the pursuit of God, but this time, the object of our pursuit. What are we intending to do? Any military type of mission 
has an object. What is the purpose of the mission? What are we trying to accomplish? And the question that I'm going to put before the church today is, who is the object of your pursuit? You want to pursue God. Now, who is the object and why is it necessary to do this? As we will see in the text, the Apostle Paul had a very, very specific intentions in his heart that resulted in his pursuit of God. And the pursuit was not merely one of intellectual head knowledge. I want to put that out there. I want to reiterate that again. It's not about acquiring as much knowledge and data points in your brain as you can. You know us. Sound doctrine is essential. It's not about everything isn't about how I feel or I think God told me. God speaks through His Word. So sound doctrine is essential. But there can be many that can have very, very sound doctrine and not have Christ. It is not one for the sake of the other. It's both. Sound doctrine will lead a person to a deeper relationship with Christ. Sound doctrine will pull you into the, purpose, uh, uh, into the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit, the revelator of truth, will grab your heart and your soul and your mind and pull you in. But you got to desire it. you got to pursue it. And so we're not talking about head knowledge. What we are talking about is the personal, personal intimate knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. To the Apostle Paul, it was worth everything. Everything. There wasn't a price too high to pay to come into the presence of God and to know the person of Christ. Many of you know I'm a big fan of A.W. Tozer. Listen to what Tozer says. I really want you to listen. This is well worth listening to. Many Christians are filled with good information, but only few mercy drops fall into their languid soul to satisfy the thirst for God's presence. Too many have never burst into the dazzling sunlight of God's conscious manifest presence, or if perchance they have, it is a rare experience and not a continuous delight. The first challenge I want to put before you is, have you had that? Have you come into the presence of the Lord? Do you know what it is to be in the presence of God and His holiness surrounds you that all you could do is bow down your head and say, glory, Lord, glory, Lord. You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. Do you seek Him early in the morning? Do you seek Him late at night? Do you seek Him in the womb, in, 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 in the middle of the night? Are you so consumed with the mindset of God? Or does God only come to you on a Sunday morning when you go, I got to go to church and then you go to church and then you leave and then you say no more of God this is not the normal Christian life this is the abnormal Christian life if indeed what I described is you now listen the blessing the benefit is this you can come now into his presence I don't know what the demographic numbers are for the United States of how many people 
are identified as Christian. At one point in the history of the nation, it was well over half the nation. There are currently estimated, I think it's 355 million Americans. 355 million Americans. If 10%, which I don't believe that's the number, but if 10% were Christians indeed, if 10% knew the presence of God, if 10% were obedient to God's word, that would be 35 million Christians. What kind of nation would this be? It wouldn't look like what we're seeing today. I'll tell you that. How critical, how critical will it be for us? How critical is it for us? How critical as a church to be defined by the very knowledge of God? How great would it be if when people came to Calvary, they said, those people, those people walk with God. God is in their midst. When you speak with your neighbor, when you speak with your family, when you speak with your friends, they say, oh, Barbara, oh, Nancy, oh, Ricky, that person knows God. And listen, that's what God had intended he had intended that let's take a look at the scripture philippians 3 i'll read verses 7 8 and then we'll we'll go into the scripture but whatever things were were gained to me those things i have counted as loss for the sake of christ more than that i count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing christ jesus my lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain God. It's amazing here, the great book of Philippians, it's uh, just a, a phenomenal epistle that Paul writes here. Philippians was for the most part a sound church, and I want to I make a point to all of you, these churches that Paul writes, when you read the book of Romans, when you read the book of Ephesians, of Colossians, the book of Philippians, all the things that he writes, you need to know that he is writing to a small group of believers who live in a larger society that is paganistic and antagonistic toward them. These weren't churches like we've had traditionally in America that have been in a society that is tolerated and all the others. No, these were churches, these were people. This was an outpost, a Christian outpost in a hostile pagan society. They weren't big. They were nowhere near the kind of churches they had, we have today. They were mostly poor. Many of them were slaves. And as Paul writes to encourage them, and you see throughout the epistles, he's writing them to fill them with the knowledge of God, but keep going, keep going, keep going, keep pressing, keep pressing, keep pressing. And I say to you today in Calvary, and I say to all believers who have given their hearts and lives to Christ, we may see all the world changing. We may see the horrors that are occurring in our country. 
But we must keep going. We do not bow down. We do not stop. We have an obligation to advance the gospel against the gates of hell. And you want to know where the gates of hell are? Right there. And our responsibility is to bring the gospel right there against the gates of hell. Look what he says in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Paul's testimony here in chapter 3 is a mirror, if you would, of his testimony in chapter 2, particularly the famous passage, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is known as the kenosis. In there, Paul paints the picture of everything that Christ did. And he shows us in that uh, passage of Christ's humility in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Of Christ's surrender and submission in verses 2-7. In Christ's obedience and suffering in 2-8. And the associated blessings by doing so and remaining faithful. He paints the picture. This was Christ. Christ was so humble. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ emptied himself. He became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, wherefore also the associated blessings, right? Wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the picture of Christ's humility as Paul lays it out in Philippians chapter 2. And now as he gets to chapter 3, He does a parallel, and the parallel is as Christ did. So I consider nothing too great, too lofty for me. He begins verse 7 by, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. And Paul's message is for others to come to the place of full surrender in Christ. Clearly the object of his pursuit is Christ. It is not religion. It is not formality. It is not tradition. Listen well. The object of his pursuit is is none other than Jesus Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What are the things that we cling on to? What are the things that we have difficulty letting go? Our society is being challenged today by a wicked and evil government in Washington. I have no problem saying that. Mandates are going forth saying if you do not do this, you're going to be fired. If you do not do this, you're going to lose your health benefits. If you do not do this, you're going, to be, you're going to be the degenerates of society. We are, going to, we are going to push you aside. You, you, you are responsible for the illnesses and the maladies in our society today. 
I have no problem saying that, by the way. It is a wicked and evil government. They preach to us about the necessity to protect life while this government goes out and kills babies day after day after day. They go out and they want to preach life while they're, while they're contemplating how can we deliver a baby alive and let it sit there for two or three days and allow the mother to make a decision. And if she makes a decision that she doesn't want the baby to kill it. They preach to us about morality and ethics. And they are the ones that violate every ethic underneath the sun. And it is the government that is without morality. Paul looks at the scenario around him. The very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He esteems above all else. Paul refers to his worldly success and what a track record he had. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was not only a teacher, but he was a teacher of teachers. Paul spoke multiple languages. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was raised under the greatest rabbinical teacher that there was at the time. Paul had credentials that would shock most people. Highly educated. Paul was so zealous for, for the synagogue that he was moved to persecute Christians. And he did not receive condemnation for that. He received accolades. Much like those in our government today. And yet, what does Paul look at in his pursuit of God? What does he look at in terms of the object of affection? He says, whatever those things were, whatever the credentials, whatever I have accomplished in my life. By the way, it was thought that the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, was an extremely wealthy man. He says, whatever the wealth is, whatever the credentials, whatever the recognition of the world, I have counted all of that as loss. But not merely loss. I count it as loss to gain Christ. In today's world, it wouldn't have been uncommon for Paul to retain the credentials, to retain everything, and add Christ to the list. Now don't misunderstand. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I'm not telling you all go out tomorrow and quit your jobs, right? We're all good with that, right? But what I am saying is, to Paul, if that was the impediment to getting to know Christ, then it had to be moved aside. Because Christ was of superior value. Christ was of ultimate value. And the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, what value does Christ represent to us? What are the things that hinder and hold us back? I talk to people sometime and they say, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I, I, I get up for work at 6 o'clock. And then I leave the house and I'm at work at 7 o'clock. And then I don't get home till 5 o'clock. 
And then I have dinner, and I'm not done till 6 o'clock. And then I have to take care of some chores, and I'm not done till 9 o'clock. And then I watch a little TV, and it's 10 o'clock, and I got to go back to work. You tell me when, you, when I got time to pray. You know what I say? God has given me tremendous wisdom. I said, get up at 5 o'clock. Get up at 5.15. Is not Christ worth it? Is it not worth it to spend time in His presence? Is it not worth it to coming to know Him? Is it not worth it to be alone with the living God? Listen, if you are in Christ, Christ has made the way possible for you into the throne room. The Word of God tells us that we're able to come into the throne room boldly and find grace and help in time of need. And He calls us to come and we go, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't know about you, but I'm jacked up. I need time to be with the Lord. I need time in the Word of God. Listen, I want to share something with you. There aren't degrees of Christians. Right? The kingdom of God is not like a corporate organization or a military organization. You know, there's a supervisor, there's a manager, there's a director, there's a vice president, there's an executive vice president, there's a, a C-level officer, and then there's a CEO. I know sometimes we think that, right? We think, oh, that dude is a really good Christian. That gal, boy, what a Christian she is. I wish I could be like that. Let me share something with you. There are Christians and there are unbelievers. That's it. Another way, there are believers and there are unbelievers. Now, if you profess the name of Christ, if you feel that you're in that believer category, then wouldn't it make logical sense to pursue the one that pursued you? To go after the one who came after you. To praise and glorify the one who saved you. To come and enjoy his presence. To come into the fullness of the mind of God. I love it. I think I mentioned this last week. The first article in the great Westminster Confession says this. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him. Did you ever think about enjoying God? I know we think about enjoying watching a TV show or enjoying doing a physical activity or enjoying reading or whatever it is that we pursue. By the way, whatever it is that we pursue. But did you ever think of coming before the holy, living, righteous God, becoming before the Godhead, becoming before Christ the Savior, and dwelling in His presence and enjoying Him? Oh, if you've ever felt the presence of God, you would know what I mean. Oh, when the presence of God descends upon you, 
and you know that you are in the presence of the holy and you're without words and you can't say anything, but all you could say is, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, have mercy. Praise your name. Glorify your name. Wednesday night prayer meeting, which I encourage you to attend because God is doing great things. We have a standing rule. We don't ask for anything. Isn't that weird for a prayer meeting in America? There is no list. We're all making an assumption that as believers you have your own prayer time with the Lord. I pray that that's a good assumption. But what we do do is we do come before the Lord and we give Him praise, thanks, honor, glory, And we ask for one thing. God, move upon your people. That's a bunch of individuals coming together to pray. Wouldn't it be right to do that individually? Wouldn't it be right to come into the presence of the Lord and whatever is restraining you, cast it off? I love the statement of Leonard Ravenhill. You've heard me say this a million times. Why? Because it's burned into my conscience. Are the things we're living for worth Christ dying for? We have to answer that question. Are the things that are consuming us, the things that are taking our time, the things that are taking our mind, the things that are replacing God as affections in our heart, are those things that you are living for worth Christ dying for? C.T. Studd wrote a famous poem, and this is probably the most famous line you could remember. Only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Those are important things to consider. We know where Paul was with this. Paul was, Christ is the object of my pursuit. You know, the Lord Jesus made a very powerful statement. I don't know if we realize this. In Matthew 6, 21, he makes this statement in his Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. The things you pursue, this is not Christ, this is Mark, but the things that you pursue will give indication of where your treasure is. Where you spend your time, where you spend your energy will clearly indicate where your heart is. It'll do something else. It'll also indicate where your heart isn't. If the things of the world, the pleasures, the material gain, the acceptance, the career status, the entertainment, if these issues, if all these things become the drivers of your life, then it becomes clear where your treasure is. Right? Where is Christ in this? Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, some of you probably know this by heart. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Did He end it there? No. And all these things shall be added unto you. What are the all these things? Are all the things 
the very things that I pray for? Is it my wish list? Is that what he's saying? In other words, if I seek first the kingdom of God, then everything I wish for is going to come true. What are all the things? All the things contextually is the righteousness of God, the blessings of God, the faith of God, to not be anxious for anything, to consider the lilies of the field, to consider the birds of the air, and not one falls to the ground without the Father. All of that faith, everything that Jesus spoke to in that great sermon on the mount, all those things, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you desire the things of God, you're merciful, you're a peacemaker. Guess what? If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. But what do you have to do? What's the key word in Jesus' verse in 6.33? Seek. Pursue. Go after. Go with a diligence and go with an intention. Be intentional in your Christian life. Know what it is that you are pursuing. Whom or what is the object of your pursuit? In verse 7, one word defines that for Paul. Christ. I've counted all those things as lost for the sake of of Christ. What a glorious truth. I count it all loss for the sake of Christ. The pursuit of Christ, let me tell you something, it's going to cost you everything. Everything in the sense that you must lay all things down in the pursuit of Christ. Listen, Jesus illustrates this point in two really great short parables. One is the parable of buried treasure and the other one is the parable of the pearl of great price. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13. How are we doing? We're doing okay so far? All right. You're not thinking about lunch, right? Amen. Amen. I want you to take a look at these two very short parables, two parables in three verses. You rarely see that. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 44. Again, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the parable. That's it. It's over. It's the parable of buried treasure. Look at the second one, the pearl of great price. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Interesting. Here's a question. What's the common message in both those parables? 
We know that salvation is that precious thing that is hidden to most people, but those who find it, what happens to them? They rejoice with joy in having found who? Having found God, having found Christ. And what did it cost these two? What did it cost these two in both parables? They went away and they sold everything they had to get it. The pursuit of Christ will cost you everything. Because the reward of salvation is not merely, hey, I'm not going to hell. But the true reward of salvation is to come into the presence, in the knowledge, and into the person of Christ. To come into a relationship with God. Both these people on their encounter realized the joy, realized the immeasurable worth that was in that treasure, that was in that pearl of great price. And so subsequently they said, everything I have is not worth anything. I will go and I will sell it all. I'll get rid of it all that I might acquire their object. Is Christ worth selling it all to gain Christ? Is there anybody here that honestly could say, Pastor, um, you know, it's, it's good. I appreciate this. This is good for the other guy, but it's not for me. I don't need this. I don't need to make any adjustments in my life. I don't need to change. I'm good with the Lord. Man, me and the Lord got it together. Every time I call him up, he answers. Every time I do this, listen, there is so much more in Christ. It is an infinite wealth. And let me share something else. If you don't enjoy spending time with him now, how will you enjoy heaven? What's heaven? The presence of God. If you don't enjoy him now, if if the things of God are laborious, if the things of God are, are torturous to you, that you'd rather be doing something else. If you come and if you even if you come on Sunday and you come on Tuesday night and you come on Wednesday night and it is arduous and it's not something that you do from joy out of your heart. I encourage you to repent. Something is not right with that. But what is worse than that is to be indifferent. Jesus told the church at Laodicea. He said, because you are neither hot or cold, I will spit you from my mouth. And the actual word that Jesus uses is I will regurgitate, I will vomit you from my mouth. What's significant about that? I'm not going to go into an exposition of vomiting, but what what is significant of that is this. It's an expulsion by force. When you regurgitate, it is an expulsion by force. What is the imagery that the Lord is telling to those that are lukewarm? Because you are lukewarm, guess what? I'm going to expel you with force. Should that be said of any believer? Oh, that we would be the people that yearn for God. Desire God. 
How many of you would say, and I'm not looking for a show of hands or anything, but how many of you would say, oh, Pastor Mark, I'm so tired of the Christianity as is, and I want to come into the fullness of God, and I want to know Him, and I want to be able to say, not only do I know Him, but my God knows me. A terrible thing happened in the conservative church. Because a lot of other churches were going down a different path and they were claiming some miraculous things and they were doing all these other different things. The conservative churches, the Bible-believing churches at one point said, we don't want to talk too much about the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be like them. And consequently, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. Listen, the last time I checked, there is three in the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are to desire the things of the Spirit. Jesus in Luke 11 makes this great statement. How is it that you being evil give good gifts? How much more shall the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Where would we find the Holy Spirit? When we come alone to the Father. You see, Jesus doesn't say, hey, Father, Mark's calling me. You could stay here. Holy Spirit, you could stay here. I'm going to run down, see what he wants. The triune God comes. The triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Come to meet with you and you call upon the name of the Lord and you seek Him with all of your heart. And you know the most wonderful thing about the triune God? Here's the most wonderful thing. Number one, we have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us. So we have one who not only saved us and is not just sitting in heaven just waiting for the archangel to shout so that he can come down, but we have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession. Aren't you glad if you are in Christ that Christ is living to intercede for you? But not only that, we have a blessed Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells within the hearts of believers. And what does the Spirit of God do? He's the revelator of truth. He is the convictor of sin. He points all men and all women to Christ. He points them to Christ. Even in our failings, He points us to Christ. Go to Christ. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Go to Christ. And what is Christ doing? He's ever leading. Lord, I'm praying for my servants. Lord, I pray that, Lord God, that that You would strengthen them. Lord, I pray. And then the Holy Spirit joins as He ever leads lives and he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words he groans for us who does he groan to he groans to the father and the holy spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for word and he searches the heart and god the father knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And He intercedes for us as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on behalf of God. Look at this God we serve. 
And this is going on multidimensional. And it's taking place outside of time and space. And it is persistent and it is continuous as the Godhead comes to intervene and intercede in our life. Now listen, just put yourself in there and plug yourself in there as the Spirit comes, as the Father comes, as the Son comes, and we come and say, Father, we want to know you more. We want to be found in you. Father, shed for me those things that hold me back. Shed for me those things that keep me bound into the pulse of the world. Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world. That means... Do not be fashioned according to the likeness and the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable will of God, which is our reasonable service of worship. Let me share something to you, church. When you seek him, he will allow himself to be found. When you find him, he will transform your mind. He will transform your soul. And when you're transformed, you will give glory and reflection back to Christ. And in doing so, we are fulfilling the worship of God. What could be more beautiful? What could be more spectacular? What could be more wonderful? Why don't most people desire this? Why is it that in the church, people, they'll, they'll record their favorite TV show. They'll make sure to watch their favorite TV show. They make sure to buy all the things that the television and social media are telling them to buy. They'll become consumed with all the degeneracy that we see occurring in our society. They become overwhelmed in the politics. They become all overwhelmed in the hopelessness. But why don't we come before God and beseech him? Listen, they can kill us in this life but they can never take Christ this is why I believe this is perhaps one of the most urgent things that need to take place in the church of Jesus Christ that believers would be men and women who not only know about their God but they know their God and if we are pursuing we know the object of what we're pursuing we know the person we're pursuing and we know the end game we're pursuing. Christ himself. There's so much more I had to share, but I'm going to just jump forward. I'll pick it up next week, but I want to say this. We always hear of heaven. Since we were little. Oh, when you die, you go to heaven. We've always heard of heaven. 
And we go, when I go to heaven, boy, it's going to be so cool. I'm going to meet Jesus and I'm going to walk down the streets of gold and I'm going to be by the crystal river. And I'm going to meet God. Here's a newsflash, Christian. You don't have to wait to go to heaven. You can come to know him now. You can have fellowship with him now. You can know the person of the Father. You can know the person of the Son. You can know the person of the Holy Spirit now, today. And if you're not in Christ, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you said at some point in your life, I'm not ready for that stuff, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, let me share with you something. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, He has made a way. You see, Christ came down from heaven. God incarnate came down from heaven, became obedient, and the infinite God took the form of a human being, submitted himself to be born in a womb of a virgin and was born physically and walked the earth and fulfilled the law of God. And then at his 30th year, he went out and preached the gospel and called men and women unto himself. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is light and my burden is easy. Come, come, come. And rather than people come, he was assaulted. He was railroaded. He was arrested, although he committed no crime. He was tried. He was convicted. And he was sentenced to die. And he died upon a cross. We actually know the date that this happened. April 4th, 30 AD, 32 AD. And what happened? He was whipped. He was beaten. He hung on a cross naked. They cursed at him. They spit at him. They punched him. They ripped out his beard. His body and his skin was ripped apart and the blood flowed rapidly down that cross. But he didn't die a martyr. This was done to pay the penalty for every single person put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something else. No man killed him. Because the scripture says at the appointed time he lifted up his head and he, uh, he lifted up his head and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he was taken down from the cross. And he was laid in a friend's borrowed tomb. And he laid there for three days. But on the third day, despite all the, the schemes of the enemy, that mighty stone that they put to block it with the seal of Rome was rolled away and Christ came out of the grave and he came out of the grave physically. Physically, not as a ghost. 
He came out of the grave physically. He rose from the dead. How did he rose from the dead? Because God had accepted his offering that he laid his life down for those who had come in faith and repentance to him. And God said, as a proof of that, I'm going to raise him from the dead. He rose from the dead physically. He walked among the earth. He ate. He drank. He spoke. He talked. People beheld him. He said, come see me. He goes, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. If I have, go ahead, stick your hand right in my side if that makes you feel better. He rose from the dead. He walked on the earth for 40 days. And in the witness of many, he ascended into heaven. And the angels who were there saying, why do you look so surprised? The same Lord who ascended will come back the same way. And he's coming back to get all who put their faith and trust in Christ. And the issue is, have you put your faith and trust in that Christ? Not the Christ that the world walks around saying, oh, Jesus is love. But the Christ who rose from the dead. And let me tell you something, and I'll end with this. He's coming back. And let me tell you something else. It's a lot sooner than a lot of people are going to think. Because the Bible tells me that there's going to come a day, and I think that day is real soon, when the eastern sky is going to split, and there's going to be a shout of the archangel, and the trumpet is going to sound, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then we which shall remain shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and thus we shall forever be. I don't care if everybody rejects. I don't care if nobody believes. I don't care if people say you're a nut. What I care about is, will I be faithful to Christ? And while I am on this earth, I am making it my mission to know everything I can to come into the fullness, the fellowship of my Father, my Son, and my Holy Spirit, and to know Him with every fiber of my being. So if you don't know that Savior, I call to you. I command you by the Word of God. Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting your good deeds. Stop trusting in anything else. Turn to Christ and cry out and say, God, save me, I'm a sinner, lest I die. And if you do that, with the heart, man believes unto salvation. And with the mouth, he confesses. Will you do that today? Will you confess Christ today? Listen, there's no ceremony we need to do in the church. All you have to do is humble your heart and bow and speak to the Lord. Let's bow our head in a word of prayer.